I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. One of the biggest topics this year for South Florida was education. From changing COVID policies to abiding by new state laws, schools were turned upside down with new regulations. We saw a push of parental rights advocates spring forward, emboldened by Governor DeSantis's victories in school board elections across the state. School boards were shaken up, with Broward nearly losing its current superintendent. Broward was the site of not only sweeping changes in education, but also a sentencing trial four years in the making. After four years, the Parkland shooter was sentenced to life in prison, serving 17 continuous life sentences. Could this mean, what could this mean for future trials? Joining us to discuss Broward County and education are WLRN's education reporter Kate Payne and WLRN's Broward reporter Gerard Albert III. Thank you both for joining us. Kate, let's uh, start with you. Uh, education had quite a year in Florida. Uh, let's start generally. Uh, the, the Parental Rights in the Education Act, also known as the Don't Say Gay Bill by Critics, critics uh, was passed in this year's legislative, uh, legislative session. Uh, what sort of impact did it have on South Florida schools? Right. So this law, again, bans classroom instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade and in other grades if it's not considered age or developmentally appropriate. And we've seen a good deal of impacts across South Florida. Uh, You know, for many parent activists, it's emboldened them to really use this term age appropriate as a weapon to target um, policies and and curriculum they don't agree with. Many of these activists specifically have been trying to limit LGBTQ issues in the classroom, you know, ending any discussion of of LGBTQ issues. Um, And we've seen opposition to books, to curriculum, um, teaching of comprehensive sex education in Miami-Dade County, uh, as well as LGBTQ inclusive instruction. And with the creation of this bill, we've seen a push and focus on parental rights What influence have parents uh, had on schools this year? Yeah, so I think one of the most striking examples of this uh, was when the Miami-Dade County School Board voted to toss out its own curriculum on comprehensive sex education. And that was in response to complaints by activists who claimed that the material wasn't age appropriate um, and and took issue specifically with uh, instruction on birth control, for one. Um, And this was pretty stunning because the material covered in those textbooks included state-mandated instruction. Um, And for a time, it left the district without a curriculum. so initially, you know, the board rejected those textbooks, but a, a few days later, the chair at the time, Perla Tabaris Hantman, called another meeting and changed her vote. And so the books were approved. But she's one of the members who's not on the board anymore. So I think we can expect, you know, this issue to, to come back again. So many moving pieces here. Uh, will we continue to see this focus um, into the new year? Yeah, I mean, a a number of the candidates who ran on parental rights platforms won their races across South Florida. And, you know, they were uh, aligning themselves with Governor Ron DeSantis and, you know, this greater movement to restrict certain books and curriculum, um, again, to restrict discussions of LGBTQ issues, conversations about identity, about history. Um, And this is a a tactic and a, a movement that we've seen across the country. Um, you know, there there are some who will say the election is over and that this will die down. Um, of course, there's lots of 
speculation about the governor running for president. Um, do elections ever end in Florida? I don't know. Uh, but, you know, some, some teachers tell me they see this as part of a, a concerted effort to undermine public education more broadly um, and, and an attempt to, to redirect students and redirect public funding towards private and, and charter schools. Do elections ever end in Florida? That is the question, right? <laughs> uh, school board races are typically nonpartisan, but that sure wasn't the case this year. Uh, Democrats and Republicans endorsed school board candidates. Perhaps more impactful uh, is DeSantis-backed candidates who won elections across the state, um, with Monica Colucci winning in Miami-Dade. Alongside her was uh, Roberto Alonzo and Daniel Espino uh, were uh, sworn into Dade County School Board. Um, or Dade School Board, all three have, uh, you know, have been allies to the governor. What can we expect from this sort of new makeup of Dade's uh, board? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say school board uh, elections are ostensibly nonpartisan. You know, certainly people can generally tell a a candidate's party affiliation, even though it's not listed on the ballot. And that's been true for for a long time. But yeah, I think the the level of like overt partisanship, the endorsements by the governor, um, candidates aligning themselves with with him, that's like a, a new level. Um, that we've seen recently. And as far as those new board members, you know, they've talked about parental rights, about the risks of what they see as indoctrination. Um, and, you know, like like you say, they have these relationships with DeSantis, with Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, with State Education Commissioner Manny Diaz, um, Monica Colucci in particular. Uh, she's a a career educator um, and has talked about her Christian faith and that she thinks religion should play a larger role in public education. Um, but as, as far as their impact more broadly, you know, something that a school board member who lost their election told me is, you know, even the members who weren't running this year saw the writing on the wall and saw the power of DeSantis's endorsement and of his supporters. Um, and and they said that these other members will fall in line. And something that, that will be coming up is maybe in a year or so, uh, Sup- Superintendent Jose Dotres is expected to retire. Uh, when he took the job a year ago, he had two years left in the DROP retirement program. So these new members could play a key role in deciding who the next superintendent of the state's largest school district could be. I have to say, Kate, I've never expected the school board to be a political battleground. Uh, like This is new territory for a lot of people. Um, in Broward, the school board's makeup changed drastically this year. Four members were removed by the governor uh, on the recommendation of a statewide grand jury, and he appointed four new board members. Uh, as of now, three of those members have been replaced with newly elected members. Um, however, DeSantis has played, as you've mentioned before, a big role in shaking and shaping the school board. Could we see more influence from the state in school boards in the coming year? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, DeSantis has made it clear that he's not shy about removing local elected officials from office, you know, between the the Broward school board members, um, as well as the, the Hillsborough County state attorney who was removed for some of his statements on abortion rights. Um, and I, I do think that's something that's hanging over board members as they're trying to navigate complying with these new state laws that many of them personally do not agree with. And, and you know, while there are still questions about the constitutionality of these laws, um, 
so that's that's a pressure point. And then we're also seeing the State Department of Education, you know, just recently um, continuing to pressure school districts to roll back policies and resources for LGBTQ students, which the state believes may be illegal under these new state laws. Um, and and we're seeing, you know, the, the Palm Beach County School Board, for instance, rolled back part of its equity statement under that pressure from the state. The other districts are also, you know, taking down uh, different resources for students. So that, that pressure is, is very much there. And, and thanks for mentioning Palm Beach County. Clearly, this is a tri-county um, um, situation. Uh, to say the least. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with WLRN education and Broward County reporters about sweeping changes in education and what the Parkland story could mean for future trials. Uh, speaking of Parkland, let's segue into that. Gerard, are you still there? Yes, sir. Uh, great to hear from you. The Parkland shooter was sentenced to serve 17 continuous life sentences. However, many, including the parents of the victims of his shooting don't feel like justice was properly served. Could this case set a precedent uh, for future cases? Right. That's what a lot of parents were, were saying and were worried about the day of the verdict. And it was obviously a very emotional day. Um, in the coming weeks uh, that followed, I spoke to some lawyers who had been following the case. Um, and they told me that that's not really a danger that every case um, the jury's instructed that they have to focus on the facts of that case. So it likely won't set a precedent for other people not getting the death penalty. But in this case, uh, the jurors, at least I believe it was three of them, were convinced by his defense lawyers to vote for life in prison instead of the death penalty. Now, an investigation earlier this year by the Sun Sentinel revealed Broward's 911 communication center had a series of dropped calls, long wait times and staffing issues. The county gave the sheriff's office money to solve the staffing issue and ordered a consultant report on the system. Uh, what did that report show? Right. That uh, that report showed four, uh, I guess, large takeaways. Some of them are being worked on. Uh, in the short term, and some of them are more longer fixes. Um, like you said, staffing levels need to be raised. And the Broward Sheriff's Office was given $4.75 million to go towards salaries to make them uh, what the Broward Sheriff Gregory Tony called more competitive. Uh, they need to follow industry standards as they go and build these new buildings that will house the 911 operators. And uh, the technology system that allows the automated callbacks of dropped calls needs to be updated. And the last big takeaway was that the system that gives accurate locations of people that are calling also needs to be upgraded. Um, a lot of these systems, the Broward County, uh, Broward County commissioners said that we have the technology, we're just waiting for it to be implemented. Some of it will be like I said, short term, early next year, some of it a little more long term, like the construction of the buildings. Yeah. And, and was this was this discussed at a county meeting this month? Yes. Earlier this month, um, the results of those findings were discussed with the Broward Sheriff. Right. Now, for both of you, uh, let's let's segue to uh, the Broward Superintendent, uh, Vicki Cartwright. Uh, Gerard, last month in a surprise decision, she was fired by the board's then members. 
the majority of whom were appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis. Her position was a state of concern after DeSantis removed four members of the Broward School Board at the recommendation of a grand jury. What le- what led to that initial decision? Well, the vote to fire her was brought up by a DeSantis appointee who um, it was his last day on the school board. Uh, her job had kind of been in limbo um, since DeSantis replaced uh, the four elected members with his appointees, but they had the board had voted to give her 90 days to show improvements to certain areas uh, with accountability and with morale. And 19 days later, they voted to fire her. Wow. And, and um, Kate, uh, earlier this month, a vote to undo the firing passed five to three. Which board members voted for and, and against the decision? What What is next for the superintendent after this. Mm-hmm. So members Debbie Hickson, Jeff Holness, Sarah Leonardi, Nora Rupert, and Alan Zeman voted for keeping her in the position. Um, Chair Lori Alhadef, Tori Alston, and Brenda Pham voted against keeping her. Um, but something that was brought up in the discussion um, was not so much about Cartwright's performance as it was about board members' concerns that the initial firing was not properly noticed to members of the public, that it came at a very late night meeting, it was not on the agenda, um, and and that the public didn't have a real chance to, to weigh into that decision. Um, as far as you know, what comes next for her, her long-term future still seems pretty uncertain. Um, they're going to, to come back and review her status and her progress in January um, and are still looking for, for more improvement on um, some of these issues of, yeah, staff morale, um, some of the complaints that, that led to the initial firing as far as, um, you know, some personnel issues, some audits um, showing district vendors overcharge students. Um, so there's definitely... Um, still eyes on on her as far as her long-term status and, and speaking of the public how how did people respond uh, to it um, members of the public so you know going into this whole discussion and the back and forth of her firing you know there has been this concern from board members and and from members of the public of just the turbulence and the turnover at the district which has been through so much you know in the last four years and and even in the years before that um, you know, with, with members of the public and students saying they, they just want consistency and just like a chance to try and get back to, to the business of education. Um, and, you know, when when you look at the upheaval recently, it is this question of like, who would want this job after this? Um, so it's it's been a lot for this district. They've, they've been through a lot. And that weighs on on students and, of course, the staff there as well. You you talked about morale. Um, Is there a potential chilling effect this decision could have on those working for the county? Uh, Board member Sarah uh, Lenardi uh, said this could have a chilling effect on current and future employees of the school district. Yeah, and and that's something that's come up as well, you know, when they were discussing, um, you know, potential searches for other candidates, too, is... You know, I, I remember board member Alan Zeman trying to make this pitch of Broward is still a great place to work, like trying to, to convince people, you know, that Broward does have a lot going for it uh, and and that people should want to, to come to this district. Um, but it's yeah, I mean, if between the Parkland shooting, the pandemic, these folks have, have been through a lot and um, 
it's it's sort of always waiting for the next shoe to drop in Broward, and we'll we'll see if this decision sticks. Okay, you mentioned the Parkland shooting again. Let's segue back to that. Uh, Gerard, uh, you've covered the Parkland shooting quite extensively, the trial itself. What were some of the main takeaways for yourself as a reporter that you've experienced during that trial? Um, I think a, a big takeaway was seeing, as witnesses were called, how how deep um, and how, how far the shooting spread, um, the amount of people who knew somebody, the amount of people who were affected by the shooting. Um, you know, obviously there were 17 people that died and all of their families and all of their friends, but there were also 17 people who were injured. And then there were also hundreds of kids in that school who had to live through it and then go back to school. So I think that was the big takeaway is that this this was something that, although it happened in one school in North Broward, it, it affected the entire region. And that's a really good point you made. We we obviously focus on the folks who have died, but the, but the folks who are injured are living with the trauma day to day. Um, did they mention some of that trauma in the courtroom? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, their testimony, I mean, the, the the prosecutors called all 17 people who were injured and uh, their testimony was, was probably among the most difficult to listen to. Um, at one point, one boy who had been injured was asked to uh, remove his shirt to show uh, the scars from, from the surgeries that he had had because he was shot multiple times um, and he did and, and and jurors were able and the public was able to see you know physically the the, the effects of 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 being shot and surviving uh, being shot by this this high-powered rifle uh, Gerard very briefly I'll ask you and Kate uh, finally what else is on your radar um, for this upcoming new year uh, well <laughs> there's a lot to keep track of up in Broward uh, there's new commissioners on the county commission and we'll see how they deal with the 911 issues and other issues like affordable housing and transportation and then uh, Fort Lauderdale has three new commissioners and that uh, that election was not short of any drama so we'll see how they manage uh, the biggest city in Broward. And Kate what are you looking forward to this year? Yeah, we've also seen new leadership coming into some of our universities in South Florida. So there's, you know, lots to track there. Um, I'm also hoping to do more reporting on the impact of the affordable housing crisis and homelessness on students and educators and, and just the disruptions that that's causing in schools, the burden that that weighs on, on our schools. Um, and also looking at the the impact of student loans, you know, who's getting their loans forgiven, um, how much, you know, folks are, are carrying around. Um, so if if any listeners are, are in those situations, please reach out. We'd, we'd love to hear your story. Kate Payne is WLRN's education reporter and Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. Thank you both for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, demolitions in Miami, a look at how these potential demolitions affect housing and more in South Florida, post-Surfside. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Over a year ago, the Champlain Towers South collapsed in Surfside, killing 98 residents. The families of the victims and first responders dealt with the shock and trauma from the disaster. 
The families of the victims received more than a billion dollars in a settlement. To get their part of the money, they had to explain the worth of their deceased family members to the judge. Legislation was passed locally and statewide to ensure condos are routinely inspected and maintained in the wake of the Surfside disaster. However, the city of Miami has also started to target buildings for demolition, putting affordable housing in the crosshairs. What is next for Surfside and the families of the victims? Could the city of Miami actions create a precedent for other cities to follow? What's next for affordable housing in the region? Joining us to talk about these topics are WLRN's Danny Rivero, investigative reporter and co-host of the South Florida Roundup, and WLRN's reporter, Veronica Zedagovia. Danny and Veronica, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good to see your faces in the studio. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> uh, Danny, there's uh, a lot going on with the city uh, targeting properties for demolition. Can you give us a bit of a background? When did this start? Yeah, I mean, the this happened after the Surfside condo collapsed last year, but the real change in the city of Miami happened in March of this year. And it was a very quiet change um, in the city policy, you know, in the in the unsafe structures panel and in, in the city administration. But essentially what has changed is that before, if a building was declared unsafe, the city would kind of work with property owners. Um, deadlines on paper were just more or less, you know, suggestions. They would, they would work with people if they blew a deadline or whatnot. And what changed is, as of March, if someone blows a deadline and they have a property that has been declared unsafe for whatever reason, it could be a broken window or some other, some small work done without a code just declared unsafe. The city is routinely moving to demolish all those properties now. And, um, you know, the talking to people about it, the, they feel that, you know, the, the reason this was made was because of the Surfside condo collapse. And then, this is, you know, a lot of people are saying this is a, massive overreaction on the city of Miami's part. And there's a lot of implications on affordable housing and property rights and and personal rights that we can get into. Yeah, let's let's talk about before we get into those um the overreactions as as you put it, which buildings or properties are the city focusing on demolishing? There there's there's actually a range of them, but from what I've found um from just the number of lawsuits that have been filed in, in county court is a lot of these are older properties, um, not necessarily historically designated, but a lot of them are old, you know, going back 50 to almost 100 years old, multifamily properties. They're some of the cheapest housing around um, because a lot of them are old and older buildings are naturally more affordable. Right. And so one of the things that, that they're saying is, OK, the 40, 50 year inspections after Surfside, there's been an overall focus to to ramp those up. But some of the buildings that are being ordered demolished, it's because they did some internal renovation work without 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 a permit that the you know got the city on the on the crosshairs. There there was a a building that was ordered demolished, and it started because a window was put out, was put in without a permit, and then you know the property owner blows a deadline, and the city comes back with a legal order saying we're going to demolish your property <laughs> and and you can understand why the property owners are talking and saying hold on city of <laughs> miami like this is a massive overreaction and you know one one thing to keep in mind as i mentioned is unsafe structure does not mean a building is going to collapse it doesn't mean a life safety issue um by 
code, unsafe structure can refer to almost anything, any work that's done without a permit. It doesn't mean that the building is going to collapse. Right. And, and, and do you know how many buildings, properties the city has slated for demo, uh, for demolition? There, there's several dozen um, that 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 were demolished this year, or that the the city gave permits for, and I've identified a couple dozen property owners that have filed emergency um, court cases in the county courts because they have demolition orders um, that that basically came down through this new policy, and they're asking the the county courts to to stop the demolitions because a lot of these buildings are actually in great shape they just have some small issues and they need the the city to just work with them and, and prevent the demolition and before property owners did those changes i mean was the city policy change made public did they know beforehand and still did it or were they uninformed no i mean and i've asked for the city acknowledges that the change of policy took place i said where's where's the policy can i read the policy I haven't gotten a response. Um, under oath, Rene Diaz from the, the city unsafe structures division in a court case I found said, yeah, we changed the policy. And then the attorney asking him questions said, okay, where's the policy? And he said, I, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't point it to you. So it's a bit of a mystery, which is really alarming actually, because we're talking about people's homes, people's investments. I mean, I, I talked to a property owner a couple just a couple days ago that they put their life savings into this multifamily building and they were planning to live in one and rent out the others and now it's been given a demolition order and they're saying we're going to lose our entire life savings here you know this is this is a really big thing and the city can is not even able to point me to the policy and so obviously people are reacting <laughs> to the overreaction. Yes. Uh, let's segue into that. Multiple lawsuits have been levied against the city in the wake of this policy change. Uh, how have county judges ruled in these uh, cases? Some, you know, a lot of it just comes down to what judge you get. And that some of that's the luck of the draw because I've, I found some, some cases where judges have said, city of Miami, put the brakes. Like, you cannot demolish these properties. And then other judges are going along with the city and saying, actually, you know, the, the, the courts don't have any jurisdiction at all to hear these cases in the first place. So they're siding with the city. So at this point, it just depends on what judge you have, which wow. is a little <laughs> alarming again. Yeah, qu quite alarming. And as with everything in Florida, these types of cases can often set a precedent. <laughs> um, is there a chance uh, this could set a precedent for other cities in our region? I, you know, I think it's to, to be determined. Um, I haven't seen other cities or jurisdictions enact something this aggressive. I mean, this is absolutely, I can characterize it as a very aggressive policy. I haven't seen that replicated, but perhaps it might. I mean, perhaps, um, you know, this the state start to take notice of this and they have something to say about it. I mean, a lot of times... Local governments do things that alarm the state government and the state government steps in and they, they pass a law doing something about it. And, you know, all, all, all of the above is, I think, to be determined in 2023 when it when it comes to these issues. Um, perhaps even more alarming. This is coming at a time where housing is such a strong topic that won't go away because of our short housing supply um, in the state of Florida. The city's move to demolish these buildings has come up during an affordable housing crisis. Mm -hmm. If the city is able to demolish these properties, what impact 
would it have on affordable housing? It would, I mean, to, to be clear, if, if the city demolishes all the properties that have issues with these kind of violations, I mean, that is going to exacerbate the affordable housing crisis in ways that I don't even think we can fathom. I mean, there, there's Section 8 properties that, that all the tenants get, get um, you know, their rent subsidized by the federal government. Some of those properties are being ordered demolished. And now those property owners are, you know, fighting the city, saying you can't demolish this property. Uh, I mean, and, you know, these are people that there's no there's there's like years long wait list to find Section 8 housing already. Right. Yeah. If you put those people out on the street, I mean, these people are, are literally going to be homeless. This sounds like it's going to be a story that's going to continue to intensify next year. And so um, yeah, thank we you definitely for will. reporting. Uh, I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is a South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with WLRN reporters Dana Rivero and Veronica Zaragovia about housing and building legislation impacting people in the town of Surfside and the city of Miami. Um, and, a result, and as a result, uh, the entire South Florida. Up, uh, Veronica, residents in Surfside, the town of Surfside, were quite surprised recently when they learned that their town manager, uh, Andy Hyatt, resigned during a regular city meeting. Uh, did he give any reasons for why he decided to step down? Uh, he, the letter of resignation that he provided, I asked for that letter on behalf of WLRN, and we have that on the on our webpage, and it didn't provide any details. The mayor, Shlomo Danzinger, said that he had met with the town manager before that commission meeting on the 13th, and that he had family issues. That's all we know. I have made several records requests, and so far, we don't have any further information. Um, but he did, um, what's interesting is that you can always check the agenda of a commission meeting before, and so there was the town manager's report was included dated for that meeting. So he had been working up until pretty much the time of that commission meeting. So it's it's all very strange um, the way all of this was handled. Yeah, definitely strange. And, and how how did he resign? What was it publicly? He all we had is that letter. Um, he requested for severance pay for 20 weeks and, and payment of his health insurance for those 20 weeks and unused vacation time. Uh, so that's really all we have uh, to go on at the moment and um the uh, really the mayor just said that he had met with the town manager and that was that that was all all we know um the commissioners one in particular she expressed a lot of shock because she said that the town manager wouldn't be able to receive those payments if he had breached the terms of his contract uh, but in the end the majority of the commissioners voted to um, give him the payments that he requested. So it seemed at least one commissioner was very surprised. The others, I couldn't really tell from just their body language. But um, I would say a lot of us, certainly reporters, were not expecting this and, turn. And, and he's asking for like months of severance pay? Right. What, what, he's what? asking for uh, 20 weeks of severance pay and the health insurance for those weeks and any unused vacation time, a payout of that as well. And... So obviously, um, um, city officials have responded to this. Uh, 
um, in various ways. Now they have to focus on refilling the position or, um, you know, so so is it being filled? Well, what they ended up doing at that same commission meeting, Mayor Danzinger chose Hector Gomez um, as the acting town manager. He's also the public works director and he accepted it um, as an interim position. I don't know if it will become permanent. So that has been filled. And um, then there were also other resignations that happened the next day. Um, we learned from with an email from the town of Surfside that the assistant town manager, Jason Green, uh, he was also the CFO. He resigned, as did the chief of police, Rogelio Torres, Jr., and we also requested and received those resignation letters. And um, the town manager didn't specify any reason. The chief of police uh, also mentioned family problems. Um, so it's it's really um, unclear what's going on. Now, now before Hyatt resigned, he uh, essentially submitted an update um, uh, in regards to the designing of the condominium to replace uh, the former Champlain Towers. Um, when will that update be revealed? It's expected that, so every commission meeting, the town manager and the, the town attorney will submit a report with all the goings on that happened, let's say, from one month to the next. And this is only a small portion, let's say, but there's always something about the Champlain Tower South in the town manager's report. And in this one, he mentioned that the architect who was hired to design the replacement, Moshe Safdi, his the design will is expected to be unveiled in January of 2023. Um, so we'll know more about what the developers are thinking for that building um, to go on that lot, what, you know, what it will look like. Now, we spent some time with Danny discussing um, demolitions. <laughs> uh, let's let's segue into um, a, a video you shared on Twitter. Uh, is it the Dalville Beach Resort demolition uh, on your Twitter account? I remember seeing that. I'm from Palm Beach County, so I had no idea about the historic nature of this particular building. So it's quite interesting to see that um, and to see your report. Um, and so this building just wasn't any building. There is some historic uh, significance behind it. Uh, what made this building so historic? Who were some of the people who passed through it? Absolutely. Well, in March of 2004, um, the building was designated a contributing structure within the North Beach Resort Local Historic District. And that means that the architecture of the building contributes to that historic character uh, because it was built in the Miami modernism style. And that was a style that w that came during the post-war period in South Florida. And um, aside from its architecture, the building was renowned for the people who passed through. And so it wasn't just say Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Joan Rivers, but also President John F. Kennedy gave a speech there in 1961. And then what it's most known for is a performance by the Beatles in 1964 live on the Ed Sullivan show. And um, so the building really had a lot of, um, you know, it just meant a lot to people who, who live there who have passed through. Yeah, clearly meant a lot. Uh, why was it taken down? Uh, w was it damaged? That's a long story, a <laughs> very uh, interesting uh, South Florida saga. But um, it, the Meduelo family who owned it, they closed it in 2017 because it had had an electrical fire. And then Hurricane, da uh, Hurricane Irma caused damage to it. So it remained closed for quite a long time until the city of Miami Beach sued the owners um, wanting to get them to pay for the reparation for the sorry for the restor to restore it and um, 
they said that they didn't have the money for it. So then what ended up happening is that they had an engineer go inspect the building and he said that it wasn't uh, safe. And so um, the judge, the same judge who oversaw the Champlain Tower South litigation um, required the building to come down. He said that the fact that the Beatles performed there wouldn't be enough of a reason to put people's lives in danger. And so it came down. And that was when I went to see the, the implosion that was planned uh, quite a bit beforehand by the city. And, and while you were there, um, obviously there was a crowd of folks, crowd of residents who witnessed it. Um, you spoke to anyone? Um, and if so, were there any memories that they may have shared with you? Yeah, people were, they lined up early. And uh, one in particular, um, I remember had told me her name was Lourdes Noda. And she had mentioned that when she and her husband bought their condo just a few blocks away, they had gone in there for breakfast at the Deauville. And they also had seen jazz musician Arturo Sandoval perform there. And people you know, would go in there to to get drinks by the pool or just, you know, it, it's some it's a, such a huge building that it now they had said that it had kind of um, been an eyesore. Some people felt like upset the way it looked um, because part of it had already been demolished. So it was just kind of like some a lot of debris was just there on that lot for a long time. So they kind of felt like one way or another it was time to unfortunately move on and and do something with that property and for now the property remains vacant it remains yeah i mean they still have to remove all the debris from the implosion i notice that still needs to be done but um it will remain vacant and at the time being because in this most recent election voters rejected a proposal that would have redeveloped changed it would have changed some zoning rules to allow for a bigger uh, buildings to go on that lot, a hotel and a condominium building, and that was rejected by voters. So at the moment, there's no, unless another developer with a lot of money comes through and offers something, uh, it will remain vacant until something else happens. All right. Veronica Zaragovia is WLM reporter and Dana Rivera is WLM's investigative reporter and co-host of the South Florida Roundup. Danny and Veronica, stay with us for the next segment for some final thoughts on the topics. Still to come, continuing this conversation with our reporters. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Veronica, let's talk about Surfside again. In our previous segment, we talked about how, um, you know, the, the, the sort of difficulties that the town of Surfside is going through in terms of leadership or whatnot. The people are looking forward to a memorial. At least they thought they were. Um, a memorial has been planned for victims. But, but, but what's the status on that memorial? Really, that's been frozen for some time because in October I had covered a meeting that took place between uh, some families who, who attended the meeting, um, especially the Langesfeld family and a representative of the developer based in Dubai and of the architect who's been hired to design the building, Moshe Safdi. And um, they couldn't, the families would like a memorial to go on a portion of the lot where the building collapsed. And so... The, the town has already des designated a portion of 88th Street for the memorial, but families wanted to be on the lot, so there's some friction. Although at that meeting, it seems like maybe the two sides could come to some kind of agreement and there was going to be another meeting. And I've asked many times that meeting 
never took place. Um, I don't have information why that didn't happen. But all we know for now is that the plans might be unveiled in January for the new design, but we don't know why the building, the Champlain Tower South, collapsed. And a lot of families feel a lot of anxiety about how it's possible to move forward at this pace and not know what caused the death of 98 people. Oh, man, that's that's a really good point, because I think a lot of folks are assuming, hey, we should put up a memorial, but there's a lot more inner workings, a lot more moving pieces involved into why the memorial isn't up. Right? That's right. Um, and so coming into the new year, 2023, Veronica, you've covered a lot this year. Uh, Florida is a, a safe haven for a lot of controversial stories That's right. <laughs> for reporters. <laughs> um, what what do you have um, on your radar for, for next year? I'll definitely be following up on these points to understand how the new town officials, you know, what what kind of roles they're taking on, um, why these resignations happened, um, anything having to do with the Champlain Tower South site. I cover Miami Beach politics a lot, too, because I I live there and um, I've been covering that for during my time at WLRN. And so we just elected that the Uh, residents of Miami Beach just elected a new commissioner to replace a commissioner who passed away, who died in June. And so um, we'll be looking at what's going on in Miami Beach. Spring break is coming up and that's always a time of a lot of tension in Miami Beach. So uh, lots to cover uh, already. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's easier to ask someone what are they looking forward to for the coming year? But also, I think it's also easy to ask someone about their mental health. Like, what are you doing for self-care as you prepare for 2023, knowing that there are still so many stories that you have to cover and a lot of stories that, you know, may pop up as you're investigating one story, something else pops up. Uh, but in terms as a reporter, as, as, a, as a human being, what are you doing for self-care? Well, I really appreciate that question. I'm very fortunate to be from here. So this is home. It's always been home. And so I have all of my family and, and long lifelong friends who live here. And so I feel very, a lot of companionship. And I also happen to work at the friendliest newsroom in South Florida, and that does a lot for me every single day. So um, I feel I'm I'm in good shape to start the year. Are, are you? Uh, you know, a lot of people join gyms. <laughs> oh, yeah. Are, are you? Do you actually, have anything in your bucket list? I'll that share you... that I have recently joined a boxing gym in Miami Beach, and I go every night from eight thirty to ten. You're all welcome to join me, Fifth Street Gym. Uh, I release a lot of tension in there. So. How, how's that jab? Oh, oh, it's good. If you want, I can test it. <laughs> I don't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and Danny, of course, again, like I said, uh, 2023, there's a lot of stories that you've been working on in 2022. But 2023, obviously, there's a lot of stories that you're uh, going to continue to work on and some pop up stories that you need to focus on later Uh on as well. What are you looking forward to? I mean, there's always a lot going on. Um, One thing that I think is going to be a big focus for us, um, there's a couple big lawsuits the city of Miami is facing alleging some pretty bad misconduct by City of Miami officials, uh, commissioners, Commissioner Joe Carroyo in particular. He's actually going to be deposed in one of those suits in early January. So that's been a long time coming. So we're definitely going to be paying attention to that. And, um, you know, and another thing is just watching the state government, the Governor DeSantis and, and Republicans won landslide elections. Um, they feel that very strongly they have a solid mandate to do whatever it is that they that they want to do. Um, DeSantis is expected to launch a presidential bid later this this year. And, 
he might be looking to give certain things to the Republican base. And so that will be playing out here in Florida. So we'll definitely be watching that. Yeah, that, that that's a great segue to the fact that the red wave didn't quite materialize across the country, but certainly materialized. It in was the state, here and it materialized in the county that I report out of Palm Beach County. Um, where we've had some surprise uh, conservatives and Republicans have certainly won the mayorship uh, in Palm Beach County, for example. Um, What are some main takeaways that you believe the red wave could have politically? Do you think there's a lot of headwind that Republicans are pretty much running on? Yeah, I mean, they Democrats for a long time had some semblance of power. They don't have that at all. I mean, every single statewide um, you know, position is held by a Republican now. Now they have super majorities in the House and the Senate in the Florida legislature. So they can do whatever they want to do. Um, and you know, there we'll we'll see what happens on on abortion. Um there's some signs that 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 could be restricted further than it is now after last year's sorry, this year's law. Um you know, on on gun access, Governor DeSantis has has said that, you know, he would like to move forward on constitutional carry. You know, letting people carry, um, just by virtue of of living in the state of Florida. So, those those are going to be very big topics if they come up. And uh, yeah, we'll yeah. we'll be covering it. Uh, earlier in the segment, I spoke to WLRN's education reporter Kate Payne about uh, the the political battlefield. Um, on the school board. <laughs> so the school boards in South Florida are also uh, one area that we should also pay attention to. Uh, what's on your radar in terms of self-care? Uh, it's one thing to ask you what you're looking forward to in terms of reporting, but what are you doing for Danny? What are you doing for yourself? You know, I'm lucky to live in the city of Miami, beautiful place. I go on long bike rides. You know, I, I have some hiking buddies, so I actually go on, on, on hikes and get outdoors, especially at this time of year because it's about to cool down a lot and stay cool for a couple months. You know, go camping. Um, I just like being outside, and I like I like moving my body. I, I'm a skateboarder. I've been a skateboarder my entire life, basically. Go skating. Yeah. We'll I'll, talk I'll, about I'll, some. Yeah, well, cook Sounds some food. Go cook keto. some food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like these plants. Yeah, yeah. So, so. I'm I'm well taken care of. I'm 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 lucky to live in Miami. Br- brush the dust Absolutely. off some of your winter clothing. Uh, <laughs> watch a few iguanas fall off the trees. Exactly. Uh, as yeah. we get a little cold. <laughs> Veronica Zaragovia is WLRN's reporter, and Danny Rivera is WLRN's investigative reporter and co-host of South Florida Roundup Show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor for news. Mateus Sanchez is a digital editor. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.